Ahoy Authors! You're listening to The Writership Podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Watts, a StoryGrid certified editor dedicated to helping you develop self-editing skills and write a better story. If you want to learn more about the podcast, read the show notes, and grab this week's editorial mission, visit writership.com slash podcast. Welcome to episode 135 of the Writership Podcast. Today, I'm talking about climaxes, the decisions and actions your characters take in response to the dilemmas they face. This is the fourth in a series of episodes on scene elements to help you craft and evaluate scenes that work. One quick announcement before we dive into the topic. If you could use some help staying focused on your writing and a place where you can ask questions and celebrate successes, then join the Writership Podcast Slack community by visiting writership.com slash community. Okay, we're going to move right into the quote for today, which is from Sean Coyne. And it goes this way. A climax is the active answer to the question raised by the crisis. It's the choice the character makes between the best bad one or between irreconcilable goods. This is the big reveal of character, not who he says he is, but who he really is. If you want to understand how important the climax is, just ask Robert McKee. He says, the climax of the last act is far and away the most difficult scene to create. It's the soul of the telling. So in fact, the global climax is almost always the core event in your story. It's the one the reader reads the entire book to experience. Now, scene climaxes serve the same purpose on a smaller scale, and they build to that ultimate global climax when the character shows the world what they're really made of or not. So with all that in mind, let's turn to today's submission from Matt Bazell. A window out, or the accidental death of Frank Ortiz, is a horror story of about 2,100 words. So thanks, Matt, for your submission. An unremarkable-looking man named Frank Ortiz pushed a yellow cart loaded with unlabeled spray bottles and aerosols. The vibrancy of neon liquids offset the expression that scarred the man's face. He was the sole custodian of Valley Bridge High School and its population of 146 privileged students, and he wanted very badly to sleep. The result was a near-perpetual, somnambulist state that left Frank wanting something more from a life filled with endless, repeating cycles. A life with no out, with no place to hide from the horrors of reality once that hardwired fight-or-flight mechanism finally clicked over to flight. That primal mud-and-gore instinct that has sat on the human frame as something of a vestigial organ, beating and pulsing since the first spark gave birth to sinning flame. People look for ways out, 
baser instincts compelling them to find an avenue of escape. Humans are social creatures, but perversely, they have evolved past the necessity of true sociability, no longer requiring the shared air of others, and so no one paid any attention to the stocky, gray-skinned man as he moved through the narrow halls of the private school with the slow tread of the nearly elderly. Someone happening to look in Frank's direction would not notice him. He was an ellipsis. His whole being allowed the eye to simply pass him over as if he were nothing more than interference, a trick of light in the background, no matter how close to the fore he stood. But if by some strange stroke of chance someone happened to look in Frank's direction and actually see him, they would notice the greasy sheen of his patchy beard and the glassy look in his eyes. They were two chance observations that would be absorbed nearly simultaneously, but were nonetheless devoid of meaning that marks true perception. Frank Ortiz was easily missed and quickly ignored if noticed. The extraordinary circumstances of his death would not make it into any official record, and so even the blip of excitement within his final hours on this earth was to be forgotten within the month of their occurrence. It wasn't as if Frank didn't notice the complete lack of attention paid to him. He worked a shift that started when the school doors opened and ended as dusk finally fell to dark. He cleaned up discarded food from the cafeteria and plunged rebellious excrement in the girls' restroom, but never once had he been engaged in conversation with any of the students or faculty. Rather than take it upon himself to actually speak to someone and disrupt the ghost-like role he inhabited, wearing that office like the red skin of slain animals, Frank could only bring himself to set up the conditions for the possibility of conversation. Rather than nod and smile and say a quick hello, Frank left discreet messes around the school, hoping that someone would notice, see him nearby, and ask that he take care of it. He had it down to an exact science a daily ritual that required exactly seven pages of wide-ruled paper wadded up into miniature simulacra of Native American teepee and half a bottle of spring water that he paid $1.25 for in the lounge that was reserved for teachers, but that he frequented, a metaphorical line item on the account of no one caring enough to tell him anything otherwise. How he settled on such a composition is beyond the guess of any that remember him with any kind of clarity, but it was clear that such items did not belong on the linoleum floor, clustered together like crude hunting, hunting traps. Every morning, Frank set his conversation starters and then cleaned them up at 5.30 p.m., when all the conversation-bearing individuals had gone home, without a single complaint from anyone, 
present, or in absentia. In the light of day, the persistent and rote action of constructing refuse that he would later have to clean up would seem like the very definition of insanity that you could find in any 11th grade Psychology Today textbook. But Frank often worked within the ethereal reality of the night. Analysis of facts in the cold glare of the hours that was marked by warning bells and the almost translucently white skin of gym teacher's calves was impossible. Though far from ever being noted on an official record or mentioned as a casual remark to a co-worker, the potentially hazardous machinations of the custodian were, in fact, observed. Sarah Dahmer, a bright but meek young woman with an Emmy in education, saw Frank Ortiz set his well-meaning traps on several now-documented occasions. What's more, she recognized intent in those pitiful displays of human frailty. And whether it was the paltry number of years she had lasted on this earth or the incessant verbal violence born of sexual angst that she silently endured from her confused and disordered male students. She neglected to use the thing that so many men in history have feared, her voice. She said nothing. She saw the near-loving orchestrations of wet paper with a half-empty bottle of water and simply clutched her satchel to her sweatered chest and moved to third period, the thud of her modest pumps echoing darkly off the rusting lockers that lined the main hall, and thereby ensuring a cycle of silence born of fear, a fear not of difference, but of intimate sameness. Once Miss Dahmer came forward to the police after Frank's death, no one spared a second thought about the broken neck and the bloated body that occupied the center of the hallway, an obvious victim of a self-defeating pathological mind. The systematic messes pointed simply and without fanfare to fatal accident. In reality, as things are so often confined to, Frank Ortiz did not die a fitting death in a mess of his own making. The circumstances of Frank's departure ranged far and wide of the mark of official reports and character accounts often given by individuals that knew little more than his name, though all were unable to confirm if Frank was short for Franklin or it was simply Frank. Contrary to what one might expect due to a professional association with a five-day arc that begins on Monday and blissfully dissolves on article-free Friday, everything happened on a Thursday, that shadow day that feels like air in the bladder. Frank Ortiz had just finished the massive and nightly undertaking of waxing the floors of the school's single hall. The linoleum glistened under buzzing halogen lights, and Frank turned his eyes from his work in order to stow the buffer in its usual place in his closet, always careful in his work to end next to the door 
in order to walk as little as possible on the freshly waxed floors. When he turned back, there, of all things, was a window. The sudden apparition stopped him immediately, the floor buffer forgotten at arm's length, the bleach-scented utility closet ignored. Fixed in space, four and a half feet off the ground in the middle of the hallway, the window beckoned. It shimmered in thin air without reason. Frank would have described it as floating, but he would have been wrong. It simply was. The emanating call was sub-auditory, a pulsing groan full of fury that permeated his skin, soaked into his marrow-filled bones. Frank approached the incongruous window with a growing sense of wonder. As windows go, it was nothing special, a double-paned single sash with a little metal clasp, but that only made its visitation more spectacular. The juxtaposition of the mundane and the supernatural acting as a rift in reality. Frank peered through the thin glass and saw only the other side of the hallway, the floors reflecting dimly through the muddy glass. He tried to open it, but it was locked. In that moment of bizarre circumstance, he cleaved to the sensible and crossed the floor, being careful not to slip on the waxed surface, to the other side of the window. There he unlatched the clasp, just as anyone in the world would with any window in their very home. It was when he lifted the glass of the window the anti-slip mechanisms on the sides groaning with disuse, that he saw something other than the half-hearted spirit decorations of the private high school. Beyond the double-paned glass was a marvelous place that exists outside of our world. Within the view of the suspended window was a cacophony of technicolored landscapes brimming with flora and fauna that resist even the most ardent detail. Colors and sounds blended in a tie-dye of synesthesia, sights and smells subverting one another in an eternal dance of chaos that yielded only to further and unnamed sensations. It was beautiful madness that twisted and shook in the limited scope of the human eye, that queer organ that dangles from the brain by an optic nerve. Its musk was pervasive, even to a nose dulled by urine ammonia and days-old cafeteria a la carte. There was something repulsive in it, but that was quickly replaced by something rich in the intoxication of allure. Frank rested his calloused hands carefully on the sill, the off-white paint textured by its many clips and scrapes. He fought the urge to dive in headlong, to immerse himself in a new reality beyond the shadows and borders of time and space, but the sheer ordinariness of the window before him 
and beneath his hands restrained him. He was transfixed, locked between two worlds of divergent origins. One, a matter of cause and its child effect, the other, born out of a godless womb and filled with terrible beauty that defiled the most basic tenets of what Frank knew to be the daily operation of the world. He stood there, his skeleton rooted to the world, feeling the quickening of an aging heart that has subsisted in monotony for so long. The schism between worlds failed to hold him, the shackles that bore him down, the specific gravity of a knowable universe, simply released. He was not confined to the world as he knew it. He had been given a chance moment of liberation that could, and most certainly would, stretch on into the dark spaces of eternity. Frank Ortiz simply had to take hold. And so he did. Frank left the window, the release sending a chill of regret rippling through his time-wearied body, only to return with a small metal stepladder, the kind used to replace the lights in a classroom or stack toilet cleaner on a higher shelf in room 103B, which was less a room and more a confining closet that had been reserved, like a prison, just for him. He positioned it beneath the window, its worn legs scraping the fresh wax from the floor and digging little grooves into the green and yellow linoleum, little grooves that disinterested police officers would miss in their less-than-thorough review of the accidental death of Frank Ortiz. He stepped up to the first step and watched as the world beyond the pale swirl in new ways that could almost be called patterns, but that which you refused to be limited by that term of repetition. He returned his hands to the commonplace sill in a moment of dizzying ecstasy. He could feel the pungent breath of the new reality that lay beyond, and tears flowed from his eyes as he imagined a life without his meaningless position in this world of borders and limits. He climbed the second step. The call beyond the window was now visible. It had passed beyond the confines of sound and synchronized with the melody of his thoughts, slipping into his nostrils to be exhaled from the million, million pores of his skin. The third step and the limits of the ladder. The third step and the limit of all ladders everywhere across the planet and the disenfranchising universe that it was couched in. He set one foot on the windowsill, his old docker's boot frowning back at him, lifted himself with a grunt, and slipped through the window. Okay, thanks again, Matt, for sharing your scene with us. This is a really rich scene with lots of 
interesting details that I think, you know, when taken as a whole, really give us a clear picture of Frank's existence and this amazing experience that he has. So before we do an analysis and talk about the climax within this scene, I want to talk about scene climaxes in general. So the climax, again, is one of the five commandments of storytelling. And I want to give you a quick recap of what they are and how they're all connected. Commandments is a term that can rub folks the wrong way. But what we really mean is that these are fundamental principles of dramatic structure. And they were described by Aristotle and refined by people like Gustav Freytag, Robert McKee, and Sean Coyne. Ashan has also made the connection to the Kubler-Ross change curve, which describes the steps people move through when they experience grief related to change. So what does that mean? At bottom, stories are about change, and the five commandments give us a language to talk about story structure that mimics the way people metabolize change. So most stories open with the protagonist living their life, minding their own business, when an inciting incident comes along and upsets their status quo. The inciting incident causes a desire and goal to arise within the protagonist. As they pursue the goal, they encounter things that both help or or that either help or hinder them, which we call progressive complications. Then, an unexpected event, or the turning point progressive complication, occurs, which forces the protagonist into a dilemma, which we call the crisis question. The protagonist decides between the two options and acts on that decision in the climax, the topic of our discussion today. After the climax, consequences flow from there in the resolution. So that's how the five commandments of storytelling work in your story. And they also work or are are operating in the smaller units of story, including your subplots, the individual acts, sequences, and most important for our discussion today, scenes. Again, our topic today is the climax, which is the answer to the question presented by the crisis. Now, when we talk about the climax, we're talking about decision and action. As Sean Coyne says, the climax is the truth of the character. The global climax is the moment of truth when the character can choose to abandon their previous strategy that didn't work for a chance to try a new strategy, if they have the metal to do it. Now, a character reveals who they are when they make decisions under pressure. And this is not the only way to establish who your character is, but I would say it's the most important way. If we look at this situation another way, we can say stories are about the change that occurs as the result of action through conflict. The climax is the action that yields the change in the scene or other unit of story. And if you're keeping score, the progressive complications are the conflict that forces the action. 
So the decision and action of the climax should be apparent in your scene or in its aftermath, though the decision is not always explicit because that could lead to some odd pronouncements. But the reader can often assume what the decision is from what the character does. Now, it's vital that the writer establish the climax within the context of the scene because scene climaxes demonstrate that gradual change in a character and their circumstances over the course of the story. So what else can we say about the climax besides the fact that it is the answer to the question asked in the crisis or it is the choice that they make as a result of the dilemma? The climax should be aligned with the other commandments within your scene. Okay, but what does that mean? I mean, it sounds good, but as a practical matter, the inciting incident of the scene or story should raise a question in the mind of the reader, just as it causes a desire and goal to arise within the character. The decision and action of the crisis should be related to the reader's question. The character's pursuit of their goal that arises from that inciting incident and the progressive complications should create a chain of cause and effect that naturally lead to the decision and action of the climax. The climax, of course, should answer the question presented by the crisis question, not some other question. And then in the end, the resolution should show us what unfolds as a result of the climactic action. So now I want to talk about a little bit about reversibility. Some decisions and actions in life can be reversed. You can click undo in your word processor and get rid of the last thing you you did. And that's a relief to many of us. But If a decision within a scene can be easily rescinded, then there isn't much at stake and the tension in the story drops and the reader might quickly lose interest. It kind of feels like cheating to put a character in a bind, force them to make a tough decision, and then let them undo it without consequence. But there is a range of reversibility, right? Some decisions can be undone. Others can be undone with some cost or consequence. And of course, there are some that cannot be undone. Consider these two examples on the, on the spectrum of whether you can reverse them or not. If you buy a pair of shoes and realize they don't fit when you try them on at home, chances are you could return them and get the correct size. And if the shoes are not returned in time, there might be a restocking fee or some other penalty. But if you've worn those purchased shoes outside, the store might refuse to take them back. Here's another example. If you reveal spoilers before a friend has seen a movie and then apologize, you'll probably be forgiven. And if you reveal a friend's secret, the friend may need time or an act of amends before they can offer you forgiveness, even if you've caused no actual harm. 
But if you reveal damaging information that causes your friend to lose their job or their romantic partner, they might not ever be able to forgive you, even with time. So you can see how some decisions are reversible easily and some are not. Now, over the course of your story, the decisions the character makes should become increasingly irreversible so that when the reader reaches the story's global climax, there is no question of the characters being able to call for a do-over. Within smaller units of story, that is your subplots and acts and sequences, the scene climax decisions and actions should also become more irreversible from beginning to end. Now let's talk about from scenes to stories, because your scenes don't exist in a vacuum, and they should connect to the global story spine. That is, the fundamental scenes within your story and the big change that occurs from the beginning to the end. Now the climax, that is the decision and action within a scene, should affect the character's scene goal. But it should also be related to the global story objects of desire. That is, what the protagonist needs and what they want. So whatever the character decides in each scene should bring them closer to or further from that story level goal. Okay, again, with all of that in mind, let's look at this in the context of today's submission. And we're going to start with a quick scene analysis to provide a context for checking the climax. And first, we determine the story event by asking four questions. So first is, what are the characters literally doing? Now remember, this is just what's happening on the surface. Well, Frank discovers a mysterious window, and he goes through it into another world. Right? That's just what's happening on the surface. The second question is, what is the essence of what the characters are doing? Well, this we have to guess a little if it's not explicitly stated, but when that when that window appears, it seems like Frank really wants to get to the bottom of what's beyond the window. The third question is, what life value has changed for one or more of the characters in the scene? This is where we cast a wide net looking for almost any kind of change that occurs from the beginning of the scene to the end. And I didn't spend too much time looking at this. I'm going for the obvious ones. And what we could say here is that Frank's life value changes from life to death. We could also say, you know, that Frank's workday goes from being mundane to quite extraordinary. Um, There are probably some other things that you could glean from this. There aren't a lot of characters, obviously, in the scene. Um, when you have more characters, when you have more things happening, then you chances are will have more life values that you would life value shifts or changes that you would record here. The fourth question is which life value is most relevant to the global or primary genre, right? That's the one that if you're doing a story grid spreadsheet, that's the one you would put in there. So 
This depends on what the global or primary genre is. Now, Matt suggested that this is a horror story, and that sounds pretty accurate to me. A horror story is about the interaction between a non-heroic protagonist and a monster of some kind. Now, a monster doesn't have to be literal, but it could be something unexplained, like the window and the world that Frank encounters on the other side of it. So the life value at stake in a horror story is life and death, but a fate worse than death or damnation also has to be a very real possibility in these stories. So if we were to create a spreadsheet for this scene, we might say that Frank's life value or what we would add to it is that Frank's life value changed from life to death. Now, we could get even more specific if we knew the nature of Frank's death, um, but I'll talk about that a little more about how the ending of the story is open-ended um, in a few minutes. Okay, so then we ask these questions to get a story event for the spreadsheet, and that is a precise summary of what happens in the scene. And this is really useful whether you're doing a spreadsheet or not, because it tells you, it boils the scene down to a very concise statement that hits the important points. So whether you're using Scrivener and putting this on the little index card or whether you're using actual index cards or want to add something to an outline, it's really useful to craft these story events. So the one that I have crafted today for this scene is that an ordinary window appears in the school hallway and Frank's dead body is discovered after he observes a magical world within the window and enters it. Okay, now see, there's obviously, there's a lot more going on in that scene than what I've included here, but that's the, that's really the essence of what changes and why. Okay, so after we do the story event, then we look at the five commandments. And the first is, what is the inciting incident? Well, a window appears in the hallway of the school where Frank works. Simple, easy peasy. The inciting incident, again, is the thing that upsets the character's status quo. So then what are the progressive complications and the turning point progressive complication? I've identified three primary progressive complications in this scene, and it's in his attempt to investigate the window, Frank is thwarted, thwarted rather, because one, it's an ordinary window, which seems odd, and two, because he can only see the rest of the hallway when he looks through it initially, and three, because he can't open it on the side where he first observes it. But then the turning point or the unexpected event that kind of changes things is he moves to the other side of the window and is able to open it and he beholds an extraordinary sight. And of course, there are sounds and smells and all kinds of stuff going with that. Well, then what is his crisis, right? What is his dilemma? Should he enter the window or not? And, you know, when we're looking at a crisis, we ask, is this a best bad choice or irreconcilable goods choice? And really, it depends on how you look at it, which is often the case. 
If we were to look at this as a best bad choice, we might say he's living a pretty crappy existence, but something really bad could happen to him inside that window. If we wanted to look at it as irreconcilable goods, then we might say he could say he could stay safe, you know, on the outside, um, or he could have an amazing adventure and discover something very cool in the window world. So both of those things could be good. And it all really depends on how you look at it. There's not really a wrong answer there. So then what is the climax? Well, of course, Frank enters the window, but let's look at it a little more closely and ask a few questions. So are the, de- are the decision and action clear here? Yes, we're actually told explicitly that Frank decides to enter the window, and then we see the actions that he takes, right? He obtains a ladder, he climbs it, and then he slips through the window. Um, so decision and action are clear. Now, does the climax align with the rest of the, cl- the commandments here in this scene? Absolutely. So let me show you how that works. The inciting incident is the appearance of the window, right? Which occurs after we learn of Frank's status quo. He has a routine and lonely existence with no real human connection. When the window appears, we might wonder about its nature and what it might lead to. But given the focus on Frank up to that point, we're really quite curious about what he's going to do with it. Now remember that we also already know that Frank is going to die, and I'm going to say more about that in a moment. So we might actually wonder how that's going to happen. The progressive complications are obstacles to his figuring out what's on the other side and accessing it. The turning point progressive complication shows what he finds when he opens the window. Now, as I said, the crisis question that arises from the turning point is, will he enter or will he not? And then again, I'll get to the resolution in just a moment. So you can, but you can see basically how all of the, you know, how the other three commandments, and as I said, I'll get to the resolution in a moment, but the other three commandments are aligned with the climax decision and action. So then how reversible is his decision and action? Well, it's completely irreversible by all appearances. And in a short story, that's pretty much what you want, because you're not going to have a lot of, you're not going to have several climaxes necessarily. So then what is the resolution? Well, Frank's dead body is discovered in the hallway with no window in sight. And it's apparently the result of a tragic accident. Miss Dahmer tells the police what she had observed of Frank, and no one spares a second thought for him after that. So I want to say there are two interesting points about this. First, going back to the climax assessment, the scene's resolution is aligned with the climax, right? Because though we're still missing some information about exactly how Frank's death happens and what it means. This is an open-ended conclusion, 
which was an intentional choice because Matt included this note with his submission. He said, in the end, the reader is given the option to believe in Frank's physical death and or the transcendence of his spirit to a place unimagined by humanity. Now, not every reader appreciates an ending that is, a li- is, that is less than certain, but often endings like this leave us thinking about them long after we close the book. So if you're considering an ending like this, you want to think about what you're trying to achieve with your story and whether it works with the rest of it, but it's a totally legitimate approach. Now the second point is that the resolution appears before the inciting incident. That's right, sometimes the five commandments are presented out of order, which often happens when you employ dramatic irony as your mode of narrative drive. In fact, you know, this happens in stories pretty frequently. Um, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, I know there's a there's a middle grade series, The Sisters Grimm by Michael Buckley, and every one of the books in the series opens with part of the climax... And then we and then goes back into, you know, back in time to the beginning, to the inciting incident, so we can see how the characters get in that position. Um, you might remember Fight Club does this as well. And the most recent version of um, Jane Eyre, the film version also does this. And there are lots and lots of examples, uh, but those are just uh, three off the top of my head. So I mentioned that we often do this when we're employing dramatic irony as a mode of narrative drive. Now, narrative drive is the method you use to compel your reader to stay the course, keep reading. But as a practical matter, it's really about how much information the reader has relative to the characters. But also, narrative drive determines why we read on because of the questions that we're asking ourselves when as we go. Now, I talk about narrative drive um, in detail with Anne Holly in the context of Mike Ward's story Esperanza, but here are the basics. So dramatic irony is where the reader knows more than the character, and out of concern, we read on to see how it unfolds or possibly what it means. Mystery is where one or more of the characters know more than the reader, and out of curiosity, we read on to find out what happens. Suspense is where the character and the reader have the same amount of information, and out of curiosity and concern, we read on to find out what's going to happen and whether the character will, for example, survive or be successful. Dramatic irony features prominently here. As I mentioned, we learn that Frank's body is found in the middle of the school hallway before we know what his death is caused, what causes his death, rather, in the context of his unremarkable life in which no one takes note of his existence. So that's the analysis of the scene. But what does it mean? And what, what next steps might the writer take? Now, I like to give this caveat, of course, that my suggestions always depend 
on whether I've read the scene exactly the way the writer intended. The meaning of a scene is often in the eye of the reader, and so it can be interpreted completely legitimately in multiple ways. Now remember, no matter who is giving you feedback on your story, consider it, but weigh it in light of what you know about the story that you're trying to create. So as I read this, Matt has a solid working scene here. We have conflict, action, and change. The five commandments are apparent. They are aligned with one another. The climax is solid. It's very clear. It's apparent. Um, We tick all the boxes there. One thing he might consider is whether the open-ended resolution of the entire story Um, really works or whether it might feel like a cheat or a trick to certain readers. Now my hunch is that it works um, but it's it's a question I would always ask when doing something that's a little bit unconventional. So that's that would be my advice is to assess that in light of you know what in light of this discussion. Okay Now, on to the editorial mission. As you read or watch stories, identify the story and scene climaxes. And you want to ask, are the decisions and actions apparent even if they're not explicitly shown or stated? Do they align with the other commandments? In other words, do they make sense in light of what happens in the rest of the scene? Where does the climax fall on the spectrum of reversibility? Are the decisions becoming less and less reversible as you move through the story? So begin compiling a list of climaxes from the stories you consume to use as you plan, draft, and revise the scenes for your stories. Then keep a list of your personal climax decisions and actions along with the circumstances that created them. You might want to get a jump on the resolutions episode and include the results as well, what unfolds from them. And then as a regular exercise, write about these. Now, your decisions and actions can inform what your characters think, say, and do in similar circumstances. And of course, this is what's really behind the advice to write what you know. So I want to urge you to give this a try, even if it seems a little weird or tedious or annoying. Okay, to find this editorial mission and the ones for past episodes, visit writership.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can sign up to have the editorial missions delivered to your inbox. As we wrap things up for this episode, I offer deep gratitude to today's author, Matt Bazell, and to our Patreon crew for supporting the podcast. If you enjoy the show and would like to show your support, visit patreon.com slash writership, where you can gain access to the Q&A calls and deep scene dives for the cost of one or two cups of coffee a month. If you'd like to show your support in other ways, tell a writing friend about the podcast or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. If you'd like to have your scene critiqued on the podcast, visit writership.com slash submissions. That's it for episode 135. We'll see you next time on the Writership Podcast.